0: Bill. Hey, I'm here. Tell us. Someone had asked earlier if I would say a few words in Spanish. And so um, let's do John three sixteen, okay, in Spanish, and then I'll I'll do it in dialect, the Quiche dialect. A lot of people think that Quiche and Spanish are related, and so you'll be able to tell after I finish up. John three sixteen. anybody speak Spanish here? Oh great, super! Porque de tal manera amó Dios al mundo que ha dado su hijo en un para que todo aquel que le cree no se pierda, mas tenga vida eterna. John 3:16, Spanish. John 3:16, in Quiche. This is the dialect that is spoken by about 150,000 people. It's called Eastern Quiche Now there are a million and a half speakers. Of the Quiché language in the country of Guatemala, it's a Mayan language. Yes, there are still Mayan people in the world. In fact, um, about 70% of the population of Guatemala, which numbers 15 million now, are uh, Mayan, and Quiché uh, is the dominant Mayan language in the country of Guatemala. A million and a half speakers. Where we live in Hoyabaj, there's about 150,000 speakers. So. This is John 3:16 in the dialect of the people of Hoyabach and Pachalum John 3:16. Little different sounds than Spanish. <laughs> They're not related at all, okay? Dr. Songer is going to come up and help me out here. I need help all the time. Here we go. All right, I will. Sorry, guys, I'm taking it home. I just...
1: <clears throat> okay.
0: It has been a joy and a privilege so to have been invited want- to this conference. So thank you very much, and uh, I am blessed listening to these missionaries tell their stories.
1: So today we want to make it a little bit more informal than a regular church service. So I'm going to start asking questions. I'm going to I have a few questions to start off with, and then what I want to do is open it up and have questions uh, that you all, you all might have uh, regarding Bill. So just a little bit of introduction in case somebody here doesn't just came in new. Um, Bill was born on October 19, 1943, in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. So he is a Badger. And he is a solid Packer fan, for anybody that uh, wants to know. <laughs> There's one right there. Um, and um, he also is a deer hunter. He uh, came up and spent a couple days at, at my camp hunting uh, with a bow and arrow. And he is, he is a tough guy. He was out hunting at 17 degrees on Thursday morning. And he hunted all day, stayed in the blind all day. with, with uh, Anyway, he's amazing. Um, so, I'm and uh, and as you know, he's uh, uh, you know, we talked about yesterday, he graduated from Wheaton College with a BS in, in anthropology with an emphasis in linguistics in 1965. So, the first question I have for you is uh, where how did you first decide to become a missionary?
0: Well, that um, is is pretty easy I guess uh, for you know the the normal Christian missions is kind of way way out there still okay but in my case I was raised in the parsonage my daddy was a preacher in a lot of small country churches a lot of farm-type blue-collar people in his churches and I grew up in that environment worked on a farm from um, you know young ages and uh, <clears throat> uh, I was exposed to missions my dad had a heart for missions in fact I discovered after he had passed, just in 2015, that he had received five letters from different mission boards rejecting him to be a missionary in the early 40s, because at that time after the war, there was a glut of missionaries around the world. And he had already a wife and two children, which disqualified him from a lot of the mission boards, if you can believe it. Anyway, I didn't know about those letters until after he passed, and I went through his things. when in our denomination, small denomination, uh, the missionaries usually stayed at the home of the pastor. Okay? Now, I, I was blessed by staying with <laughs> Dr. Sanger and his wife, and uh, just, just what, a, what a blessing that was. Another story. Anyway, um, moment, I would be exposed to missions early in my life, and my curfew was 9 o'clock, even when I was in high school. And uh, that was the night that I got to stay up extra late listening to the missionary tell stories about their lives. And um, my, my dad had no hidden agenda. He had, you know, it was just so interesting for, for me as a little boy. And I remember in the fifth grade, coming back after summer vacation, uh, our teacher uh, asked us to write a paper on what we wanted to be when we grew up. And it must have been that missionaries had just been at our home. They usually came during the summer vacation, and uh, they would stay at our home, and impacted me and so i wrote a story about wanting to be a missionary and uh, and and one of the three papers unfortunately that she read like 3 days later after the assignment was due was mine and she made the mistake of identifying the author of the story because i already had a reputation in my 5th grade class about 25 or 30 kids i guess of you know being a little i mean <laughs> saintly, a godly person. No, far from that. Okay, I was pretty mischievous and pushed the envelope in a lot of ways. Okay, And uh, uh, the Lord really hadn't got a hold of my life, but I was attracted to the adventure and the lifestyle of a missionary. It was challenging. So that's what I wrote about. And then um, uh, at age 13, 1956, was when the five missionaries were killed. In the country of ecuador including jim elliott nate saint and ed macaulay and those five guys had gone to wheaton college and i read everything i could get a hold of about them because i was fascinating fascinated especially with jim elliott because he was a championship small college wrestler candidate for the olympics uh and and decided to turn that down to uh invest his life in god's service and of course at age 29 he was killed in the country of ecuador and um One of the things that was like the motto of his life really came home to me. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You give up to gain, and you you never lose when you give up to God. You never lose. And so that really impacted me. And so um, at a summer camp here in Rhinelander, I made the decision to commit my life to full-time service, to be a missionary, a missionary speaker from India. Was the guest speaker that week at the camp. And Friday night, he challenged all of the young people present, about 120 of us kids. And uh, he said this which, you know, in, in the late 50s, early 60s, the word radical on campuses was quite popular. And he challenged all of the young people at that camp to make a radical commitment to Jesus Christ. And boy, that, that, that just challenged me, and it appealed to me, and I was one of a few that uh, came forward around a campfire, picked up a little stick, and we wanted that stick to represent our lives, to burn out for Jesus Christ, and that was the turning point, point. and that was what challenged me to, to go to the same school that the five missionaries. I didn't apply to another school, and fortunately, by the grace of God, I was accepted, and uh, uh, like I said yesterday, I flunked German while I was there. So, yeah.
1: um, why did you choose Guatemala? How did how did that happen to be?
0: Well, our denomination supported missionaries from Guatemala, and the missionaries that would come to our place were from usually from Guatemala, um, including you know missionaries from different denominations. Like, well, uh, there were um, uh, Wycliffe missionaries who came through. I remember Ray and Helen Elliott who were translating the Ishil language, uh, living in Iraq at the time. And they came and uh, one of the things that Ray Elliott said, and now I'm like 16, 17 years old, ready to graduate high school and already had been accepted to Wheaton and they had been graduates of Wheaton College. And uh, when Helen told me that you have to do your own wash when you go to Wheaton College, I almost just kind of said, well, I'm done there. <laughs> I've never done that in my life, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, Ray Elliott said this, I want the epitaph on my tombstone to read. He gave them the word. And I thought, wow. And and that challenged me to go to a place in the world where they did not have a written language, where the possibility of starting from ground zero and, and watching God, you know, work to to build a church and so that's that's what turned me on. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What were what were the fact well a couple things Um, so you went to to translate the Bible but in the process of translating the Bible were there any words that you that that you that you discovered that were particularly meaningful?
0: Um, The the, the K'iche people when they talk they draw pictures They're very creative and very colorful. Um, If you have ever been exposed to even Native Americans, you know, they're very, very colorful people, design, um, how colors fit together, and that's just a given in, in their culture and uh, it's true of Aztec Indians in Mexico, it's true of Mayan Indians in Central America, as well as Inca Indians in South America, they seem to to have that trait. They're just extremely gifted when it comes to creativity and it's exhibited in the way they talk. And the way they talk is a reflection of their culture. And this is what what God in his tremendous dynamics has plugged into the DNA of people like that okay and uh, uh, and so they they paint pictures when they talk and uh, th- th- there's a lot of words that can't be condensed to one word you have to use them a, a, a number of words to, 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 to say what uh, what that is and one of those things was uh, uh, one of the words that I discovered was when I was in the Old Testament then of course that's later on in my ministry uh, we did the New Testament first and then the Old Testament. What kind of a term can you use to describe the mercy seat? And so uh, exploring and, and and trying out different terms, and none of them seemed to fit. And um, I, that was about when I discovered that the the name for the place, because we did Psalm 139, and we're talking about the place, describing the place where God forms an infant child inside of a woman. And the word for that in the Indian language is tiosil. T-I-O-X is their word for anything that is sacred, that is holy. The holy spot for them is the womb of a woman. If any of you follow the news, Guatemala will never accept abortion because that's that's the penetration of a sacred place by something that is foreign to that sacred place. And so that's the term that we borrowed and built around to use for the mercy seat, which describes the holy of holies. And in Hebrew, as well as in Greek, the multiplication of a term is for emphasis. They say, holy, 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 and that is just beyond description, holiness, okay? And the holy of holies is the sacred, the most sacred place, and so we borrowed that term, the inside of a womb, to describe what God put on the mercy seat, the holy of holies. And, and it, it, it just came home to the people and was natural for them, and they accepted it. And so that's one of the terms, of many terms, that really came story. home to me and was really meaningful.
1: The other one is, how do you explain, you know, the church growth? Uh, you know, you left there, there was 250 believers, and you came back, and there was 30,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the people who weren't here yesterday, maybe told a little bit about the Civil War, and you had, what, 48 hours to get out?
0: Yeah. Guatemala went through 30 years of uh, civil war, from 1966 to 1996, when a peace accord was signed by the opposing parties. The, um, the, the revolutionaries sponsored by the communists came from Cuba, came from even North Vietnam. There were Viet Cong in the country of Guatemala recruiting Mayan Indians who had been suppressed, who had been uh, abused and belittled for centuries, ever since uh, the the conquistadores came over to Central America, basically. They would steal their property, The, the sacred burial grounds in all of the communities and towns and villages is where they erected their Catholic churches because they knew that the, the, the community would, would come into the place because it's already sacred for them. And so the statue of St. Peter uh, became the god of the sun, and the statue of the Virgin Mary is the goddess of the moon because they believed in a multiplicity. They were polytheistic, they, a multiplicity of gods. All right, And so um, uh, it was very easy for them to transfer their allegiance to what, something that became visible to them, and so what they're believing in is now a syncretism, a joining together of their pagan um, ancestry worship and uh, worship of, of the multiplicity of gods uh, and, and uh, uh, conforming in a willingness to accept Catholic doctrine. And so the combination of the two became an animistic kind of religion. And uh, that's what we walked into in 1968. and. Um, uh, through the ministry of my wife's clinic at that time, uh, the first people came to faith in Christ. She would treat patients prior, she would pray for them and ask God to bless uh, whatever diagnosis and then prescription that she would give or actual medications. And uh, there was no other show in town, so she was really the only clinic that they had. And um, one day, a gentleman. Uh, was carrying a load of sugarcane produce on his back from his home in the mountain, 45 minutes a downhill walk in a wet morning, slippery pine needles on the trail. He fell and cut his hand because he braced himself with a machete that was razor sharp in his belt. And from here to here, I mean, he just ripped his, his whole hand open. He folded it over on itself and wrapped it in a bandana. And he had heard about the American nurse in town who had a clinic. And so he left his load at the side of the trail, walked to the clinic, and opened up his hand to show my wife, and she was taken aback because she was seeing, you know, severed ligaments and tendons and the whole nine yards. And so she just asked God to give her wisdom. She sewed him up, gave him a fistful of antibiotics, and... uh, asked him to come back in five days to remove the stitches to see how the wound was dealing. Extra gauze explained to him in Spanish. Now, he's, he spoke Spanish because he sold in the, in the marketplace, and he grew up a lot in town exposed to Spanish speakers. He's an Indian man. And five days later, he came back and opened the wound up, and he had full use of every one of his fingers. It was a miracle of God. Okay. And and uh, he was so grateful that he brought a rooster under his arm to repay my wife, okay? And uh, and he said, is there anything else that we can do, to, um, uh, that I can do to, to, to show my gratitude? And my wife very astutely said, my husband is very interested in learning your language, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to come to his home, to, to our home, and, and teach him your language. And he agreed to that. Six o'clock in the morning, the next Monday morning, I was still in bed. There's a knock at the door. Fortunately, she had told me that he would be coming, perhaps. And so uh, I went to the door, and there was Domingo. And that was the beginning of our relationship. He later became the first believer. And when we did the book of Acts, he revealed to me the following, that when he was a little boy at age 11, the age that I was, When I wrote the story about wanting to be a missionary, he had a dream. And let me tell you, I've heard from the other missionaries now the importance of the dream life. God communicates, especially to illiterate societies and people who are outside the kingdom of God. He will use dreams oftentimes, visions, revelations of himself. And oftentimes this contributes to their conversion. That happens today. And it happens frequently. Uh, on these cutting-edge places where the Spirit of God is moving and has no other resource, perhaps, available. He will communicate his truth and his love to them through their dream life. And and I became an interpreter of dreams before the church was established in the country of Guatemala. He had a dream, and in his dream he saw a large white man with a black book under his arm. And he was told by a voice in that dream that when he grew up, he would help that white man put the content of that book in his own language. I later on discovered that this is a a similar dream to many illiterate societies around the world uh, who who then have translators come to translate the scriptures. He, He thought it was the Catholic priest in town, so he followed the Catholic priest into his office. He had the black book. He was a large white man He was from Spain, he spoke Spanish, and the Jesuit priest, he walked into his office, Domingo followed him in the office when he was 14. And he asked, he said, I I noticed that you have a big black, and of course, he's speaking in broken Spanish, and of course, the Catholic priest is is, is raised in Spanish language. And And the way the Catholic priest responded to Domingo's story of his dream was, I'm sorry, boy, which is how they refer to them, it's a kind of derogatory comment, uh, but your language will never be translated as scripture. It's in Spanish, and that is the, the language that we know that is, is published and, and written, and uh, we are the ones to interpret to you people what this content of the book is. So when I told you the story yesterday about reading a story from a piece of paper, in the marketplace in, in Hoyawa, there, there, there was a cultural shift in in. In, in two hours. It happened just like that. Lights were going on. How is it possible? We have been told that our language was not worth being written, or over the radio, or on the television, or titles the cars, or, or, or land, you see. And so uh, here comes this white man, naive, ignorant, okay, just following God's leading in his life, and, and beginning to translate in this language that was described to them as being like what animals do when they communicate. And suddenly, they're hearing it read to them from a piece of paper. And, and that was the beginning of, of the transition of these people to faith in Christ. Okay? Um, like you said, we, we would have... Um, um, Bible studies and that, little, little groups, but the, 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 the part I was working on in the translation is what we would share in the cell groups and talk about it and discuss it, and that's part of checking your translation to, to, to make sure that they understand. And so uh, through that, then, and in, in, in years of work, about 250 had come to faith in Christ. Um, we were given 48 hours to get out of town. One night I was showing the old Jesus film in Spanish in the municipal building. And a cold steel blunt end pistol, I think it was, was shoved into my back and a whisper in my ear. And I can tell it was not the Hoyoak dialect. It was the Chichikasenango dialect. And he was speaking to me in K'iche' and he said, you have 48 hours to get out of town or we will kidnap your children. And they were aware of, my, my kids were five hours away from where I was in a boarding school. They went by plane to a boarding school. We were so remote. And so um, uh, we decided that the right thing to do in communication by radio with our director in the United States was to not give up our lives for a political cause that uh, we could avoid. And so we packed up in 48 hours and left the country. And uh, I was out of the country for 10 years, went to the United States, pastored a church in Youngstown, Ohio. And then in 1996, when the peace accord was signed, Uh, The results of the Peace Accord didn't reach uh, the remote areas of Guatemala until later on. And so 1999 is when the leadership of the church at that time uh, requested that we return to do the Old Testament part of the scripture. When I got back to Guatemala, from 250 to over 30,000 people in a time span of about 15 years had come to faith in Christ of the people that speak this dialect. And so I'm sitting with the leaders. Now, there weren't any pastors when I left. How did they? Well, they read the scriptures. And there's pastors and leaders in the church. And they were responding to what they were understanding for the first time in their lives, having something to read. And so they they, they just take it literally. And, and so here, here's just all kinds of little churches just salt and peppered all over the area uh, where we ministered. And so... Many of these, these, these people we knew, having had relationship with them, with them through the clinics, through other ministries that we had. And so the church had grown from 250 baptized believers to over 30,000 believers in the time that we were absent. I mean, the missionary was not present people, okay? <laughs> it was the Holy Spirit who did the work of the ministry. And so I asked them, why? How did it grow? They said, well, you know that we had an earthquake in 1976. We went through a civil war. Now we have the scriptures. That was what they ascribed the growth of the church to. You know, there's nothing like suffering. You remember nine eleven here in the United States? What happened in the churches? <laughs> Prayer meetings. I mean, was packed out. Okay, and and we responded, and we 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 went back to God as the source, and so. Guatemalans have suffered an awful lot. Iranians have suffered an awful lot. The people of Saudi Arabia have suffered. And and that is when they turn to the truth. They're longing for solutions and answers. And many, many nations are converted through uh, tragedy, through suffering, through famine, things like that. And so um, they responded and they had the truth with them through that and they came to faith in Christ. Now, since the year 2000, when I started the translation of the Old Testament, that was dedicated in 2009, I left physically the country of Guatemala in 2012. (laughs) Right now, right in this period, 2018, it was 50 years ago that I went to Guatemala. Okay? Now, (laughs) now, uh, 50 years later, from zero, some say there's over 70,000 of the people who speak this dialect who now have come to faith in Christ because of the presence of the New and the Old Testament. Okay? That before they had the, the, the Old Testament, the, the, the two books and samples were done uh, that Mayan Jews are Genesis and Psalms. The last I checked, they were not part of the New Testament. So I had to do the Old Testament so they could really understand. Because they were reading it out of Spanish. then. Anyway, uh, they now have a complete Bible. Uh, 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 a, a sample of that is out on the tables if you want to look at it. It's got a red cover, and it says, Teoslachur, on the outside. Okay, sacred papers, holy papers. That's what the the, the word for holy Bible is in Quiche. So that's how God chose... Uh, I probably literally had to absent the missionary because I would have interrupted the flow of the growth of the church, you know, and, and, and just allow the Holy Spirit to do his work with the presence of the Word of God. The Word wow. of God is powerful. Amen. Amen. That's it. That's the story. Okay.
1: And he's going Tuesday back to Guatemala to do the uh, voiceover. So the next Jesus film that's going to be showing in Guatemala when we're going out there is going to be the Jesus film for Children and Magdalena. Well, Tuesday, right? Tuesday, he's leaving for Guatemala to do the voiceover. They've got the actors that uh, all assembled, and everybody's the team is is there. They've read them. He's already been there to do the translation, and so that's uh, that's an ongoing project. And he's also uh, has an ongoing. So part of his the love offering is going to go towards the next Bible. So now they have an official government character. Remember when he came, there was. He invented all the characters. There was no written language. He, he invented all the characters. Well, now there's an official government characters, and so he's, he's not retranslating the Bible, but he's, um, you said he, you're... Adapting he, it?
0: Adapting it to the new adapting alphabet? Adapting
1: it with the new characters, so all the people that are, all the kids that are trained in school now, they'll be able to read this, this new Bible. So mm. his work is never done. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: I was uh, praise the Lord. I, I spent So the day... I,
1: I, I don't want to take away t- yeah. too much time from, sure. um, from uh, Samia. So I, I, think I can't believe this time's
0: flown yeah. by, but it I'll has. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just to just to sum up a little bit, uh, the the day I turned seventy five. Two days ago. Nineteenth. Where are we at today? 21, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Okay, I'm in a deer stand on his property on my birthday. Are uh, oh, you telling me that? Yeah, watching for, watching, watching for deer all day long. Didn't see a deer. Had the greatest day in my life. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, God does not always call the gifted. I flunked German in college. Probably the least likely candidate to invent an alphabet and translate a language that was previously unwritten. God does not always call the gifted. He will always gift the called. You're called, don't worry. He's in charge of all that you will need and he will gift you the resources you need at the right time, every time he's faithful. That's the word of God. Silver, okay. thanks,
1: thank you.